You are listening or you are watching Midnight Radio. I'm your host, Jerry Adams. We're broadcasting to you live from the Badlands of Texas, from Southern Australia all the way to Northern Ireland. Today, we have a special guest with us. We have Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum. Let me get him on the screen for you guys right now. Hello, Dr. Meldrum. Glad to have you here on Midnight Radio, even though it's in the middle of the day. Now, let me let you guys know who Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum is. For those of you who don't know, and I would like to say this uh, to you, Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum. I'll just call you Dr. Meldrum, if you don't mind. That's fine. <laughs> you're, you're on here because you have fans. You have uh, people who follow um, the Bigfoot community who want more of you. And they let me know, they're like, hey, you need to talk to this man. So this is Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum. He's a full professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University since 1993. And uh, I looked at that, and that screamed at me, 1993, because didn't you graduate in 1989? Well, with my my doctorate in 1989, you went straight. But that was a, a, wait, Brigham Young University? No, my doctorate was from SUNY Stony Brook. Right. Then I did a two and a half year postdoc at Duke, and then two and a half years in at Northwestern University Medical Center before coming here to Pocatello. So you moved a long way from home, but now your home is definitely Idaho. That's right. That was right. We we gravitated back to where our roots, as they say, are, and uh, and uh, yeah, we're we're. Uh, haven't regretted uh, resettling back in the Rocky Mountains, which we call home. So Yeah, so now I want you guys, I'm going to read the rest of this, and I want you guys to pay attention because it lets you know exactly what he's an expert in. All right, he teaches human anatomy in the graduate health professions program. Again, that's human anatomy in the graduate health professions program. His research encompasses questions of vertebrate evolutionary morphology, generally primate locomotor adaptions, more particularly, and especially the emergence of modern living bipedism. He co-edited volume from Biped to Strider, the the emergence of modern human walking, running, resource, transport, Proposed a more recent innovation of modern striding gait than previously assumed. His interest... In the footprints attributed to Sasquatch has peaked, was peaked when he examined a set of 15-inch tracks in Washington in 1996. This was just about at the beginning of your career. Right. Did you was, get yeah. a molding from those foot, print, footprints? Pardon? Did you get a molding in 1996? Oh, oh, yes, yes. I cast a whole series about, I think it was five, five or six uh, examples from that trackway. We were talking about some of his samples there before we started, and I've read, I've I've read his uh, bio here, and he had about what 500 samples of castings of feet. About 300, about 300 at this point, yeah. 300, okay. So 300, 500, I mean, once you've got uh, a couple hundred, it, uh, the, uh, the message or the, uh, the evidence is pretty clear. You could probably use them to hold down your paperwork if you wanted to. Hey, what's that? <laughs> got a foot on a gray. Wow. So you know about feet. I do. I believe I do. Mm-hmm. So when, when you were looking at these molds that you made starting in 1996, maybe before that, what do you see? Well, the thing that, uh, that really, uh, that really, 
interested me, that, that piqued my curiosity, even beyond just the fundamental sensation of the possibility that these creatures really do exist, as evidenced by the footprints. Uh, what piqued my curiosity was the detail that was there, the, the evidence of the dynamic adaptations of this foot, its, it's uh, specializations for the type of walking on two legs. I mean, it, just because we're bipedal and they are bipedal, that is walk on two legs, doesn't mean we do it in exactly the same way. And one of the things that was, was quite striking was uh, a particular example that showed a very distinctive kind of speed bump almost. It looked like running across the foot right about midway along its length. And I recognize that having been familiar with the, um, the, the adaptations of the human foot and the recent innovation of, of the distinctive characteristics of our foot, namely a longitudinal arch, a fairly stiff arch that creates a stable platform for, for uh, propelling our body forward. Um, in, in contrast to that, this creature has a flat, flexible foot, as do our early ancestors like the Australopithecines, uh, Lucy. People may know uh, one example by that <coughs> nickname, <clears throat> but also in the great apes. I mean, this feature was first described in observations of the way chimpanzee feet worked. A researcher by the name of Hicks drew attention and coined the phrase mid-tarsal break. Not a break as in breaking a stick, but a break as in a, an axis of flexion, a folding, a crease. And uh, uh, that uh, jumped out at me as, as an explanation for this feature of this uh, pressure ridge. I mean, the only, the only, I mean, understanding something about the dynamics of the, of the signatures of of uh, you know, observable in, in human footprints, knowing about pressure releases, pressure discs, and so on, this uh, was the most straightforward answer. And I remembered having seen something very similar to this in an illustration of one of the tracks from the Patterson-Gimlet film, in particular, yes. one that was cast by Bob Titmus, and uh, but had not been really appreciated or understood and, and really not widely distributed. I had the chance early on to, to uh, visit uh, John Green and to meet Bob, but then at that point his health was, was already failing uh, considerably and was uh, not in, uh, uh, in, in shape to entertain a lot of conversation interaction. But he did, excuse me, he did graciously allow me to examine his original cast material and and i mean i it was it was there was no getting over the remarkable resemblance uh and anyway i'm, I'm rambling on a little bit but, but yeah that, that was the focal point that was the central um uh you know headline really there we go yeah and so you can see that's the Titmus cast. You can see that kind of uh, people sometimes mistake it for an arch, and it's not. It's it's very different than the configuration of the human longitudinal arch. I mean, this is not the foot is not shaped like that. There are other tracks in that trackway where that very flat but flexible foot has left a very uh, uh, flat imprint. It just depends on the 
dynamic uh, qualities of the uh, substrate, in this case, a sandy um, a bank along a creek bed, uh, and the dynamic of the, of the walk itself, the forward impulse, causing um, weight to be concentrated in particular areas and that uh, some of that substrate to be kind of pushed back or at least uh, pumped up as uh, other areas adjacent are compressed. And uh, so that was, uh, that was really remarkable. In fact, I mean, so, so key, so central, that eventually when I described the footprints, I uh, created an ichnotaxon, that is the, a name and description and diagnosis of trace evidence of the footprints rather than the footprint maker itself, for which we don't have a physical specimen. And this is usually um, reserved for application to extinct fossil forms. But I was encouraged by those uh, movers and shakers in that discipline that, that this was a potential worthy exception. And uh, the manuscript uh, passed peer review with flying colors and lots of support and was published. And it, it provides a handle. I mean, we, we now have a name for Sasquatch footprints, and they are called Anthropoidopes ameriborealis, which is the North American footprint, basically, and, um, and North American ape footprint. <clears throat> and so now we, we can, um, you know, highlight those comparisons and contrasts, and we have a standard against which to compare other purported footprints or footprints attributed to Sasquatch? Do they exhibit these the uh, landmarks of shape, proportion, of articulation, of dynamic signatures, etc.? And uh, there so is a, a lot to say about the feet and your experience in the feet. Matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken, you did a whole chapter in one of your books. Oh, yes. With information yeah. data extrapolated from the study of the yeah. foot. From the That's right. Uh, chapter 13 in Sasquatch Legend Meet Science. And I That's kind cool. of pulled the stops, you know. I mean, I wanted to write a book that was accessible to general audience, but I also didn't want to shortchange the reader regarding the science behind this, for me, critical key element of the of the evidence. Major, major critical. Now, I read all, every author I have on here, I read the reviews, and I don't know if you guys read your reviews or not, but sure. they're just ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so, somebody's like, oh, why is he going on about the foot? And I just don't know, why is he going to do, I'm like, are you kidding me? Do you realize the importance of it? And this is where I want to go into it with you, and we, we yeah. walked right into it. Uh, we're yeah. talking about the Patterson film, which had a big change. Yeah. It, it really had an impact on your life, but through the study of the foot. So what are we looking at here? What this man right. is saying is you, if you have the knowledge that he has, you can look at this foot and you can extrapolate the size of this beast. Right. That's one thing. And, and uh, also tell something about, again, the way that it walks. And in this case, you can one one can um, uh, look for corroboration of the hypothetical, uh, you know, the the inferential interpretation of the footprint 
you know, bear in mind the the footprint is not just like someone, you know, stepping on some sand as if they were creating a mold of their foot. The footprint is the record of that dynamic interaction of the foot through the entire period of support or stance phase we call while the foot is in contact interacting with the substrate so it's it's a dynamic so like you know just like looking at that that footprint with the speed bump that's not the shape of the foot but that's the mark the deformation there's a good way to put it that's the deformation of the soil by the foot as it uh, proceeds through that step cycle so i've said over and over again you know if if i had only the footprints from the patterson gimlin film site uh, i would be absolutely convinced that it was the real deal because uh, of the uh, remarkable situation where we have this clarity uh, that because of the substrate, it was a very fine um, eroded slate. The granules are very angular and locked together when compressed, as opposed to kind of a quartz sand where, you know, unless it's really wet, it won't hold its shape. And then as it dries, you all know, as it dries, those footprints just kind of uh, collapse in on it themselves until it's just a amorphous kind of uh, crater. But these footprints held their shape. I mean, Bob Titmus went down there 10 days later, you know, and, and, and could make an additional set of, of casts that were, you know, that had some weathering, some degradation, but still were a remarkable um, record of the variation in the individual footprints John Green and Jim McLaren went down to the site to uh, try to film Jim retracing the steps and get a comparative um, baseline of the size and dimensions of what appeared on the film. And, uh, you know, Jim had no trouble following the trackway because the the footprints held their, their shapes so remarkably well. So when I talk about these interpretations, uh, you know, the mid-tarsal break of a flat, flexible foot, I'm quite confident. In fact, I'm, I'm 100% confident in, in what I am concluding because uh, I can watch the track maker actually go through those very motions that I had inferred from the footprints themselves. So, so if you understand the kinematics of walking as well as the as the dynamic aspects of, of a footprint trace, then the two are correlated just remarkably, and and uh, you know conf- confirm and corroborate one another in a very convincing way. So, for someone to actually let's see, I'm getting a little bit of feedback here. For there to someone to actually fake that to have a costume, how could they fake the foot? Right. Right. Well, if you look at the attempts that have been, uh, uh, allegedly, uh, uh, made or, um, uh, or attributed to uh, a hoax, they're basically one of two things. You either have a stiff, uh, prosthetic foot carved out of a wooden plank uh, which has no flexibility, no mobility. And, uh, and so, you know, all the dynamic aspects that involve midfoot flexibility would be, would be just beyond the capability of that kind of a crude approach. The, the alternate would be some sort of a more flexible, uh, 
foot, uh, prosthetic or fake foot. The problem was a lot of the materials that would immediately come to mind to try to attempt such a, a fake weren't available, weren't readily available, uh, except in very specialized circumstances to your average person, if they were even available at all. You know, I'm thinking of something like some polyurethane rubber, something that, that you could mold, easily mold a, a flexible foot. But then again, you've got all the, the issues of, <laughs> of if, if your foot is flexible enough to, to show the dynamic features that are visible in that film, how do you make it, it also rigid enough to impress deeply into the substrate and propel the uh, the individual from one step to the next. It's just it, uh, it it just doesn't hold up. It's funny when we one time I did a documentary with a National Geographic Channel, I believe it was. I can't remember the name of the program now, but they actually hired an actor and rented a fairly sophisticated costume, one that had had made appearances on TV commercials and so forth. And it was uh, a combination of, you know, an, an under armature with foam sculpted musculature sewn into a spandex, um, you know, undersuit over which then you pulled this four-way stretch costume with fur cloth for, and, uh, you know, it had a, a humongous head. It made the head look so big compared to the shoulders and everything. It uh, and and the, but here's what the, the kicker was: when I looked at the feet, they were this pair of cheap loafers, like something you might find in a thrift store, with uh, just fur cloth glued to the surface of the of the shoe. And then the pant leg would just hang over the top, you know, the cuff of the pant leg. Uh, there really wasn't any detail in the toes, nothing on the ventral surface, on the plantar surface of the foot. Uh, it was, it was just, it was laughable. I mean, it, they all, all the uh, attention was given to the upper part above the ankle, but below the ankle, you know, very little attention was directed. And so it was very unsophisticated. It could, would never have sufficed to have produced a, a convincing set of, of footprints. Now, you know, the patterns for film, after all these years, we have more technology that they're looking at. Have you seen the recent video where they've used AI to clarify some of the vi- footage? Well, yeah, I was. I participated in that. Well, at least one one aspect. We didn't use AI. Well, I'm always a little uh, cautious about the application of AI. What we did, we we took multiple scans, or we took scans of multiple copies of varying generations of the film, and then uh, using computer vision algorithms, um, one of our collaborators, Isaac Tian, was able to. Um, overlay these with with extraordinary accuracy. And so you get this remarkably um, dense and, uh, and resolved or optimized is the word, not enhanced because enhancements uh, usually imply some kind of iteration that, that either averages or uh, creates, you know, through iteration creates new information fills in the blanks yeah fills in the gaps but this wasn't that it's just that when you have enough enough copies uh, to account for the idiosyncrasies of copying a film that's on photographic uh, uh, emulsion made up of light sensitive 
photo grains, not pixels, but grains. So each copy has a slightly different texture, a different uh, pattern of grains. And, uh, and so uh, that, that overlay, that superimposition, resulted in this remarkably uh, optimized image that, that where the uh, idiosyncrasies of individual copies, the scratches and the blemishes of individual copies, or even missing information on a given copy was all kind of washed out, averaged out, and the 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 uh, overarching image emerges, which is remarkably close to the original. So, can you see the picture I have on the screen right now? I do, and yeah. In a word of caution, that one has been. Uh, if that that's actually, I think a, this is yours. Pardon? This one isn't yours, no. This no, one no. It's kind of an artistic red rendering, so there's a little bit of license there, especially when it comes to the nose and mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one frame, you know, it's interesting. There's one frame that is making the rounds, or has made the rounds, that is often uh, um, uh, used for various, as kind of a jumping-off point, and its its origins are a bit dubious, uh, questionable, because none of the other copies of the film, uh, uh, you know, producing that frame or any other frame have those particular details, especially around the mouth, uh, the mouth and the nose that, that are kind of the basis for that artistic rendering. And so I think it's very mis- misleading um, representation um, and, uh, and unnecessarily so because uh, I don't think it had these big, you know, bulbous lips and, right. and, uh, uh, and uh, fully downward turning nose. Most of the consensus is the nostrils are a little more forward directed, um, not as much as, a, you know, the flattened broad nose of a gorilla or a chimpanzee, but yet not the, narrow downward facing nose of a, of a Caucasian by any means, the lips tend to, I mean, what, what's interpreted there. There's actually evidence that, the, that at one point it was pursing its lips like a, like an ape would do with a, with muscular mouth uh, where the lips are being pressed together. And the top lip is actually kind of bulging a little bit as it's, you know, it's got that real intense, glare and the lips are clenched and then in other places the mouth is more relaxed the lips actually seem to be parted although the resolution yeah see that one that one was quite a, a elaboration an elaboration of the mouth area there's oh, yeah. no basis for that whatsoever unfortunately but um this is just from the Patterson film. There's still things coming out about it. Um, I don't know if they use this same AI, but there's another video out there where it shows the AI from that video. And they built a, a big three-dimensional statue or, you know, representation right. of them, if you will. And the thing they were focusing on was the muscle in the leg, how it was bulging sure. out. Have you seen that one? That So you, it's things you've never noticed before, and they have a, a video that just is talking about the glutamus on this creature. Sure. Um, well, again, it, 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 I would be cautious about any claims of insights 
arrived at using AI because uh, uh, the you know the, the various pictures and portraiture. I mean, when you ask AI, you ask an AI program to create a. Uh, I know there was one making the rounds of a Bigfoot combined with Native American features. And, and so you get all these different kind of iterations, but they're purely imaginative. I mean, AI has a lot of imagination, is able to generate these, these notions and then apply the artistic, uh, mechanically artistic rendering of the images in a very, uh, uh, very animated fashion, but it's not real. It's not, uh, it's, and, and so the same thing would apply with, you know, AI iterations of the Patterson-Gimlin film. It's taking what's there as sort of the guardrails, but then what happens in between is, you know, pretty, pretty wide open to the discretion of the, of the computer program to try to create oh something gosh. that is kind of along those lines. But then to say, oh, you know, here's this, Revelation. I mean, if it's not there, you know, I, I have, I have, for example, and I've said this over and over again, whenever people try to, you know, they sit and tap their keys on their keyboard and create these, these uh, supposed enhancements, I have a, a five by seven color print that I purchased from Roger Patterson when I was 11 years old, when I joined the Northwest Research Association after having seen the film in the Spokane Coliseum. And that five by seven color print obviously was made directly from the original film, even before probably um, uh, other copies of the film had been distributed and, and so forth. And that photographic, uh, you know, so that photograph, a printed color photograph, is probably about the clearest you could ever arrive at from uh, an image of that of that uh, film. So you can take that, and I can put it under a dissecting scope in my lab and zoom in on the face, and uh, but you know it's not going to reveal things that aren't there in the film. So if, if someone says, well, this, with this process, we were able to resolve, you know, individual eyelashes. Well, that's baloney. I know I, I should be able to, with my dissecting scope, zoom in and see those individual eyelashes if they're really there. But just because you tweak it or you apply some algorithm or some AI that, that creates an enhancement um, that uh, that enhancement, uh, if it's adding information that isn't there, then it's not reliable. I and actually, that really goes mode. against everything you stand for. You're a scientist looking for legitimate information, but you're looking for the missing information. You're not looking to fill in the gaps of the missing information with something that's not really there. Well, right. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it, it, it's distracting from the, the fundamental um, uh, ob- objectivity and accuracy of the of the original data, but even probably more nefarious or, or insidious, rather, I guess, better word, is that it it uh, produces or provides grist for the skeptical mill that that uh, you know that there that this 
this piece of evidence is not being dealt with in a, an objective, accurate, you know, proper methodological fashion. And so it, it, you know, it just becomes, it becomes detracting and distracting, um, distracting from the real information and detracting from the credibility of that, of that uh, piece of evidence. And why would it be created uh, for popularity? Now, in your case, if someone like me or someone else on the internet comes around and they, Hey, I got this new information. Look, if you, if you do this AI, you can see this bone in the neck, you know, it's different. Why would I do that? I got a video up here and uh, I got to name this guy because this was disgusting. Bigfoot skull revealed skull revealed by brave wilderness. It was disgusting where he said he was in Canada. He found a Bigfoot skull and this oh, the whole yeah. thing was fake. That he pulled out of the ground. Pulled out of the ground. The gorilla skull. Yeah. And it, yeah, yeah, it was obviously a gorilla skull. I'm not an anthropologist, but I could tell because you could see that. <laughs> you, didn't, yeah, you didn't have to be. It, it was pretty, pretty apparent. And he, he backpedaled. Mm. Again, it was, it made it uh, as if it were some sort of promotional or his upcoming event or there's that. I see that. He, he'd said he did it so people would know if you ever do find something like this, this is what you should do. You shouldn't touch right. it. You shouldn't talk right. about it. Yeah. It was disgusting. Uh, that's yeah. That's the pro- problem, I guess, is that it, it creates this uh, this distraction. You know, it really is. A, it's a distraction for world. you, but more than that, let's talk about your paradigm. All right, as being a a doctor of anthropology, right, and focusing that on Bigfoot. What is that like for you? What what is what is that like between you and your other colleagues? Oh well, sure. You don't get uh, fame and popularity for it. No, not well. It, it you know it kind of depends on who you talk to, but in, in general, no. That the, the uh, reaction, the vocal, more um, um, public reaction, has typically been pretty negative. Uh, although that's changing, you know. It um, we have. I mean, as you point out, I've been at this for a long time, and over that period of time, anthropology hasn't been stagnant. It hasn't uh, stayed in one place, and and continuing discoveries and revelations and new ideas, new ways of thinking about the evidence um, have shifted. Literally shifted the paradigm. When I was a student, um, we were still talking about the influence of the single species hypothesis, it was called. This was the notion that the hominin niche was fairly exclusive. You know, the old ecological principle, one niche, one species. You can't have two species occupying the same niche. They can't do the same thing. One will always be better at it than the other and either cause one to go, uh, species to go to extinction or force sort of a partitioning uh, of the niche, dividing up the resources or dividing up the way in which resources are utilized. So anthropologists back in the 60s and early 70s were kind of uh, looking for other principles in different scientific disciplines to incorporate, to, to invigorate their own discipline. And, and this notion of competitive exclusion of uh, single species per niche was uh, adopted to address the 
unique aspects of the hominin niche, bipedalism, braininess, and above all, culture, a material culture. And so human evolution was seen as this single file march from one species giving rise to another, being supplanted by a subsequent and so on. Um, There could only be one at any given time. So the problem with that, and this was, you know, in full swing in 1967. So when Roger presents his film to the panel at the Smithsonian, they didn't have any place to hang, hang this concept. There were no hooks because you had just this one, uh, one uh, uh, lineage and one species at a time. And at the time we're it, we're occupying that niche. So there was no room for another bipedal hominoid. And, uh, and so they came up with really silly rationales to justify their rejection of the film. And they're quite embarrassing in retrospect, especially, but then shortly thereafter, uh, there was a shift as, as it became more and more apparent that there were multiple species of, of uh, hominoid and, you know, particularly hominin, that tree got bushier and bushier. Finally, there was the acknowledgement that, well, yeah, there were ways in which um, uh, hominin species could partition that niche. There were different ways to make a living as a, as a bipedal, upright, culture-bearing, just to varying degrees, hominin. And so now suddenly that combined with the fact, or add, add to that the fact that some of these branches have persisted until more recently than we ever would have acknowledged just 30 years ago, um, then we're, we're left with a situation where now there are cubby holes or hooks on this tree, branches on this tree where we could hang a label of, of Yeti, of Orang Pendek, of Almas, of Sasquatch, of Yaren. You know, it, um, it, it's the rule rather than the exception throughout uh, geologic time that there have been multiple species of hominin coexisting across the landscape. Why would now be the exception? You know, you can, of course, they come up with rationales. Well, it's our intelligence, our industrial revolution. Uh, you know, we've spread out through the globe. We, we uh, exert influence over you know every square meter of the surface of the planet, basically. It's the argument that what it boils down to. And, of course, that doesn't uh, hold up under closer scrutiny very, very well. So that's kind of the backdrop, the anthropological backdrop, the context. The, the point is that currently there is no reason that there couldn't be species of relic hominoid, of species that, of upright bipedal hominoids or hominins that have persisted into the present time alongside us in remote corners or sometimes not so remote corners of the, of the globe, uh, you know, where there is wilderness and, and um, uh, you know, fewer human occupants. Um, there's no reason. So, you know, when I was confronted at one time by a, uh, a colleague who said uh, when, when a paper was rejected in, in large measure because of her influence, uh, they can't exist, therefore they don't exist, and it doesn't matter what evidence you think you have. I mean, that not only was that a very inane, unscientific attitude at the time, now, even more than then, you can't justify the initial premise that they can't exist. Yes, they can exist. So then the question is, um, 
What's the probability that they do exist? What's the how persuasive is the evidence that they exist? How and, persuasive uh, is it, the evidence for you? What is the evidence? No, no, not what is it. How persuasive is it for you? Oh, well, obviously, you know, I wouldn't have stuck with this and become more and more consumed by it if I wasn't extremely, if not completely persuaded. I mean, I'm, I'm as confident that, that they are out there. I mean, I've seen footprints on myself on multiple. Mm-hmm. I've examined hundreds of casts and hundreds of photographs. I've heard vocalizations. I've had rocks thrown at me. I've had, you know, caught glimpses. I've had things brush against my tent and leave footprints outside my camp. I've, uh, you know, I've had all these experiences and talked to many, many witnesses. You know, it's one thing to be, to read an account and, you know, and I, and I go through this on a almost daily, if not weekly basis that uh, where people share their experiences with me and I have to kind of evaluate um, vicariously. Uh, it's another thing to actually be out there with someone and see the evidence or to sit there across from them and hear them relate their account to, to see how they recall uh, to where they have with trembling and fear. Exactly. Physical These are little creatures. Retelling of the story. They don't meet yeah. you in nice places either. It's like the dark alleys of nature. Some, sometimes, but I mean, it's just the vividness uh, of, of the encounter is so, is so dramatic. That's, you know, that's very compelling. It's then there, you know, when, when, when a, an experienced outdoors person has had a, a, an encounter at close range um, of some significant duration, and that can be 10 seconds to a minute, you know, that's, that's significant when, when you're actually experiencing it. And uh, under good conditions of, of observation, daylight, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty uh, presumptuous to say, oh, well, you just thought there. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, and, and in some cases, these are people that I've, I've gotten to know, that I'm now close friends with. And, uh, you know, I, I trust them implicitly and their ability to interpret their experience, um, which is another factor that, that weighs in the, in the formulation of an opinion about these things. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's quite persuasive. So looking at the scientific evidence through the fossil record, which, I mean, I didn't think about that at the time. I've lived through it where all of a sudden, oh, there was Neanderthal. Oh, well, this was this was early human. Oh, wait a second. This wasn't early human. This was another hominid that was in the family that lived there at the same time as the caveman, which, I mean, now it's scientifically proven that it's possible for both to coexist at the same time. We have that now. Yeah. And potentially up until as recently as, uh, you know, in the acknowledged record, um, I've heard dates as, as recent as 10,000 years for some of the occupation sites. I think the oldest uh, skeletal remains are somewhere between, you know, 20 and 30,000 years. But still, I mean, that's just a snap of the fingers. And so we clearly occupied 
And this is what's so amazing, though, because then people people will often fall back and say, oh, yes, but see, they were they were interacting, they were hybridizing. Well, that was very limited, and much of it was very early, 160,000 years ago. But they coexisted in Europe side by side for probably, you know, somewhere between 20 and 40,000 years. I mean, we, uh, the, uh, we, I point to myself, European settlers in, in uh, North America have coexisted with uh, Native Americans for, what, 200 years. And look at the history, what the dynamics of, of that, that cohabitation. 40,000 years, and yet at the end of that time, you could still pick up a skull and say, well, this is a modern human anatomy, or alternately, this is a classic Neanderthal. I mean, they, they still existed distinctly. There hadn't been a, an absorption, a hybridization that blended the boundaries between the two. So something was keeping them separate from one another for almost 40,000 years of, of direct contact, sometimes living on the same block, so to speak. You know, they were that close in proximity. So, um, and who's to say if they didn't survive? I mean, the Russian almas fits the description of the Neanderthal remarkably closely, and their uh, their reports, their uh, accounts of their of encounters with the almas or almasti um, are within the now recognized range, especially that eastern range of Neanderthals and Neanderthal sites. Myra Shackley, a British archaeologist, you know, who studied the um, Neanderthal presence in the eastern portions of its range, the mountain ranges up against Mongolia, she reports, uh, you know, showing these stone uh, spear points, these Lavalois, the Mousterian cultural uh, points to the locals and they'd say, oh yeah, the Almas make those, or the Almasti, depending on the word, uh, make those. Why are, why are you interested in those? And she'd say, well, who are the Almasti? Oh, they're these backward kind of hillbilly uh, peoples that live up in the mountains. We don't uh, interact with them that much. But sometimes we trade with them and you know, they describe them and their interactions with them. <clears throat> and Myra was quite uh, uh, intrigued by this and went on to study this aspect and uh, was one of the first academics to get a paper published on this subject matter in Antiquity, the uh, journal Antiquity, and a peer-reviewed paper. And, and then subsequently wrote uh, an intriguing book, a very instrumental book, because she could read and translate and summarize much of the Russian literature that addressed uh, research that had been conducted by people like Boris Forzhenev, a Russian cultural anthropologist that would otherwise have kind of languished in uh, obscurity to us Anglophones who don't have access to those to those documents. So important contributions. So anyway, um, yeah, it, I mean, it, it just shows what how year there was are, that? I've heard of that before. What year was that that she wrote uh, that paper? Oh, shucks. It was back. It came out, I think, when I was in college. 70s? So it would have been no. in the late 70s, early 80s. That I, I think remember hearing about that. Just to show you that there can be another hominoid civilization that lives right across from you in the right. in the wilderness, if you will. Yeah. 
Did, is there any information now about them still living? Well, there's there are still some reports, although they're very scant. You know, um, the person who did much of the the work, the real field work, was Mary Jean Kaufman, and um, a, a lot of her um, publications, which were often came out in sort of semi technical archaeological journals or magazines um, in in Russian have been translated and uh, with permission have been reprinted in uh, the uh, journal that I edit, the Relic Hominoid Inquiry. So they're available to people to read about the great summaries of some of that work in addition to Myra's book and the books by um, Dmitry Bayanov and, and Igor Bortsev, of course, as well. Um, and there's a few others, but, uh, uh, the, the sense is that the reports are much less frequent and, uh, many of the regional, uh, investigators and local people say that, uh, you know, that they are a thing of the past, that they are no longer around, um, you know, whether we would say they're extinct, uh, uh so they're either, they were either on the brink of extinction or so rare now that encounters rarely uh, make their way to, uh, to the popular, popular press. Now there are reports of things that are very similar to the Sasquatch in some parts of Russia. There, the, the, the Sasquatch like form has a circumpacific distribution in my estimation, because we have examples of, footprints across Asia that are remarkably similar. I mean, one of the most stunning were were the footprints that I had the privilege of examining in China. And uh, they were cast by a uh, forest ranger, park ranger, rather, um, Mr. Yuan. And a remarkable example that, again, corroborates the mid uh, flexible midfoot uh, model of a flat flexible foot for the Sasquatch. Uh, these tracks are virtually indistinguishable from the Titmus cast, for example, or other examples that we have. I don't want to just single out the Titmus cast because there are numerous examples that show that mid tarsal pressure ridge. It's just that's such a dramatic, and that was kind of the jumping off point, the first example. Yeah, there we go. There are Mr. Yuan's casts. And you can see the remarkable similarity. Um, Patterson uh, in, one in, in the middle. Yeah, yeah, the Patterson's in the middle. The uh, tip was casted from the Patterson-Gimlin film site. And, I mean, just the subtleties of the outline and this individual, its foot length is about the same, a little broader. Maybe it's a, a young male instead of an adult female uh, that would still be growing. But in any case, um, one of the things that I, I, I collected multiple examples of tracks that were essentially indistinguishable from from um, Sasquatch from from China all the way over to the Caucasus Mountains of Russia, uh, uh, and, uh, and uh, which you know if I took one, that cast and mixed it in amongst a, a sampling of, of Sasquatch footprint casts, uh, you know most people would never bat an eye about uh, 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 sing, uh, trying to single out. You could not single out. I mean, I mean, 
wouldn't bat an eye about including them in, in the array of examples of Sasquatch tracks. What I was trying to get to, the thing that, that strikes me as really quite interesting about all this is um, an, an example I've told before, but I was uh, reading an article that was addressing the imperiled status of Asian tigers. And the graphic, the map graphic, just jumped off the page at me because it showed a map of Asia with the former, the historic range of the tigers highlighted in, in the uh, you know pale orange. And then inset within were these more restricted islands of habitat, you know, indicated in bright red, that showed the present distribution of Asian tigers. What jumped out at me was I immediately recognized that these multiple examples from China, from Vietnam, from Nepal, from the Caucasus and other places all uh, corresponded to these now fragmented refugia of the tiger, meaning that there was an ecological, now in this case, you know, people are not mistaking tiger sightings for, for an upright bipedal hominin, you know, like sometimes is said about black bears and Sasquatch in North America. But, in, but what it does say is that there's an ecological correlation. There's a basis for the current distribution of these Sasquatch-like creatures that have an old world distribution and then expanded their range into North America, as did so many other mammal groups uh, at various times. It follows the ecology. Exactly. You know, it's similar habitat for these, uh, these two species, and so the distribution correlates with one another remarkably parallel. I've got this right here, and I know you know this, man. Right here. Oh, here we go. Uh, these are, it's a, yeah. what do you call it, a demonstration of the Bigfoot sightings that have been reported. Maybe I can put it, you guys can see it better. I'll put a link right. to every all the pictures I'm showing in the show notes. That's a lot of people that see Bigfoot for anybody to not believe. Right. And you have to be a, a little cautious because um, some of those databases include things other than footprints or sightings. They might include um, suspicious vocalizations or tree knocks or tree structures. Some, I, I can't speak for this particular example because I don't remember off the top of my head the basis for including the various reports. But, you know, sometimes... And quite frequently, I should say, not just sometimes, but quite frequently, documentaries will state the Bigfoot's been cited in every state in the Union, or there have been reports of Bigfoot from every state in the Union. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, there might be reports. That doesn't mean that Bigfoot exists in every state in the Union. So, you know, if you live in the wheat fields of Kansas or the corn fields of Iowa, the chances are there are not Bigfoot living there. But it does it does speak, as you point out, to the pervasiveness uh, of uh, in, in the appropriate habitats. And you can see how they tend to line up with montane forest habitats uh, and, uh, and, and some bottomlands too, but dense forest. These are, after all, wild men of the woods, right? right? Not wild men of the prairie or wild men of the Arctic. They're wild men of the woods. So... 
I'm about to open up the phone line so you guys can ask Dr. Meldrum some questions. Phone number is, uh, let me see, the phone number. I'll, I'll put the banner up here for you guys. Phone number is right up here. 325-261-0892 so you guys can call in on the second half of the show. I have a question for you. You are one of the experts, if not the experts, on Bigfoot. In your opinion, and if you can't answer this question, that's fine. Or if you don't want to, not that you don't have the ability to. But is there information about Bigfoot being kept from the public? I see these. I see this uh, graphic, and uh, I think there has to be some information that's 100% solid. Yes, here's the body, but somebody in the government or I don't know, a scientist, perhaps a Smithsonian, I don't know, won't let that information get out. Does that exist? Well, I, it, it's possible. You know, you, you never say never, I guess. But um, and I, I don't have firsthand experience with that. My experience has always been at the sort of middle management level of government agencies like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, uh, State Fish and Game, uh, the U.S. Forest Service. And in dealing with those people and even other corporate, uh, you know, like uh, forestry um, conglomerates or corporations or whatever companies, uh, my experience has been that it is driven by personality, not by policy. That is, uh, you'll have an administrator or supervisor, you know, whatever, who is very sensitive to their own reputation and uh, any perception of, of uh, in, inappropriate behavior or um, or the mishandling of uh, public funds. funds. I've heard about that. I think one yeah. of your colleagues got in trouble for um, they blame yeah. John John Mianzinski was with the uh, 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 Wyoming Game and Fish at the time, and um, uh, he uh, th- they had been directed to investigate uh, what was behind a flap of reports about Bigfoot encounters. The mm-hmm. the supervisor was concerned that if there was um, if there was someone in a fursuit, you know, there were people, this has gotten enough publicity. There were people showing up, asking, coming to his office, asking where could they look for the Sasquatch to shoot? Yes. <laughs> so he thought if someone's traipsing around in the costume, I don't want uh, someone to get shot on his watch. On the other hand, he said, if there is an 800 pound gorilla prowling in the woods that might pose a threat to people on state lands than uh, state and public lands, then uh, uh, he wanted to know problem. about it. So, if so if the Bigfoot, are, they move according to ecology, I don't know, maybe it has something to do with mating season, and there's some times of the year where it's dangerous to be out in a particular area, you'd want to know. That's possible. That's It's possible. <laughs> I mean, you always have to have deference for an animal of that size, and if you, it's just like with, with bears, for the most part, you're, you're, uh, you're usually okay, but especially if not, if you, uh, get between a sow and her cubs, you know, obviously. So if you get between a, 
mother and offspring or between, uh, you know, a guy and his dinner, <laughs> then, then who knows what the outcome could be. And so uh, there's always concern. Uh, one should always use deference with, with any large wild animal. Could be horrifying. That was, that's always been kind of my experience. I've never seen any evidence of any higher authorities. In fact, they're often oblivious they of what's care. taking place down here because these people never reported up the chain of command because they don't want any any stigma or any retribution or uh, you know demoted. they don't want to put themselves in a compromising position so they never talk about it. That makes sense. That makes absolute sense. That yeah. solved it in my mind. I also want to talk about. Yeah, I could talk to you for hours about uh, hybrid DNA. I heard you say one time, without any elaboration, that that it exists in nature, or it's existed in nature at certain times and in certain areas, uh, hybridization between animals. Sure. Well, sure, there's, there, there, there is that phenomenon. I mean, the whole process of speciation is this process of, of bifurcation of, of lineages that uh, which become distinct as their respective gene pools are more isolated. The thing that that glues a, a population together is the free flow of genes. And if you restrict that free flow, then those two gene pools begin to evolve independently of one another and may alter to the point that then they can no longer interbreed when they come back into contact and and you have successful speciation. So closely related species still often have some capacity for hybridization and and many many, uh, closely related species have hybrid zones where the two species are in contact and there is occasional Introgression of, of uh, genes between the two. So uh, when it comes to Sasquatch, we have no confirmed, credible confirmation of, of any DNA samples. We just don't. Uh, there have been some samples that we were hopeful, but they come back from the very superficial examinations that that usually are all that is afforded on that occasion. So a very small sample of, of sequence or, you know, part of a single gene, usually the mitochondrial gene, which sometimes are less discriminating than would a, a gene from the nucleus of the cell uh, be. And uh, they come back as human. And that's usually explained as either um, contamination from mishandling or uh, simply a misidentified human specimen, like a hair. A hair. Mm-hmm. The third possibility that I've always pointed to was um, <clears throat> the, uh, the fact that we're dealing with two species that are so closely related, you know, even more closely than humans and chimps. We may be talking about one half of 1%, one quarter of 1%. And so you have to sequence a lot of material in order to find those very rare and dispersed markers that would distinguish them from us, you know? So uh, that raises the question uh, of a third possibility, since we're so closely related, is there any hybridization taking place? You know, this has been proposed and suggested as, as the explanation for 
um, for some of the results. Uh, but like I said, there have been no credible results. There is a very interesting paper I would like you to do, you know, direct your listeners to because it's a, it. I find it is a fascinating possibility that addresses some of this. And it was a hypothesis that was spawned uh, or was explored by an individual who, well, let's just let's just say he, he had had a real interest in this and was um, uh, motivated to explore it. And so he got into the literature and looked, and he actually found examples of what is called mitochondrial introgression, where you know some some of your listeners may be aware that the mitochondrial genome is inherited strictly matrilineally through the female line. I mean, it, so the only, all of your... It's minute also. Your, oh, excuse me? Isn't it very minute? Oh, no, it's, it's very numerous. So okay. the, the mitochondria are the, I mean, by, by, by comparison to the nuclear genome, it's much smaller, if that's what you mean, yeah. But, I mean, it's, but it's more numerous in the cell because there are multiple copies because the, the mitochondria, these little powerhouses, we like to call them, that produce ATP, which is sort of the energy currency of the cell, uh, adenosine triphosphate. And so um, there are lots of these. And all of those in each cell in your body came originally from your mother's egg. Your father's sperm contributed just the genetic material without any mitochondria. Uh, just the nuclear genetic material, and so uh, in any case, so. But the point is, the the short short story of this is that there there are there is a scenario where through limited successful matings, hybrid matings between human and Sasquatch, that there could, if if the offspring stayed with the Sasquatch population a female offspring and survived to maturity and reproduced, she would have human, um, you know, if it's a human female and a a male Sasquatch, she would have human mitochondrial genes. And if those through the serendipity of what we call the lucky lineage became dominant you know, introgressed into the Sasquatch population, then it might become common. And if you had a hair that was legitimately from a Sasquatch and you successfully got DNA and because of limited funding and so forth, you know, you're, you contracted a very superficial mitochondrial gene analysis, guess what? That mitochondrial gene is human, because it came from the human mother, and your result would be human. It seems like it. It seems like it would almost be impossible to have sexy time with a Sasquatch. That would be about like well, having sex, sexy yeah, time with a Kodak bear. There's, there's anecdotal evidence. You know, there are Native American stories, and these are, are repeated. They're not uh, isolated and singular. I mean, they're they're rare. Mm-hmm. These are would be very rare events, and. But, but the parallels are remarkably similar where, um, uh, you know, in these cases, the offspring weren't left in the custody of the 
Sasquatch population, mm-hmm. if you will. You know, it's hard to imagine the scenarios, but uh, it's not too hard. Not too hard. I mean, it's it's feasible. But the point is, in these cases, the two two cases that I'm familiar with, one that was reported in Rob Alley's book, and another that I had some <clears throat> firsthand <clears throat> interaction with a witness uh, uh, to it, to the event, or at least to the the uh, consequence to the event of a mating with a Sasquatch. Someone told well, you about no, the story. There, there, yes, there was there was a story. There was a story of a of an Indian maiden who was abducted. Okay, disappeared. She vanished. Was gone for months, months on end. And then when she returned, she was pregnant, and she claimed she had been abducted by one of these hairy men, these hairy giants, and and um, uh, had become impregnated by it. She gave birth. Well, there was great discussion amongst the tribe as to whether the birth should be permitted to go to culmination or not. It was eventually decided, yes, but that she would go into, um, into um, isolation with relatives out of the state. And then um, she reportedly gave birth. The infant survived. It grew rapidly. It was quite strong, physically strong, but health, but unhealthy. It was sickly and always getting sick had respiratory issues and so forth. And it died uh, in its early teens and uh, was buried in that location out of state. I won't give any other details, but, but what was interesting is this was recounted by the girlfriend of the girl who was abducted to one of my colleagues and, uh, uh, you know, he was privy to the details of it. What was, what then was really uncanny was we were actually doing a shoot with interviews of local people of interest, um, in, in this, in an out of state area, the area where this girl supposedly took, was, was, uh, put in isolation with relatives and out of the blue, I'm sitting here having a conversation with this you know, indigenous gentleman, and he said, what you guys really should do is go up here, the cemetery up on the hill, there's one buried up there. I'm going, what? He said, yeah. There, and, and then he recounts this story. This girl shows up from out of state, and she'd supposedly been impregnated by a Sasquatch and was here with relatives, and, and then he described she gave birth, it grew fast, it was strong but sick, and it died when it was, you know, it was actually actually left with, uh, abandoned and left with the uh, priest and was buried in the church cemetery when it passed away when it was about 12. And uh, I'm going, this is the same story, only from the other end of the, <laughs> I mean, it really corroborated what, the story. What decade and, was this that this happened in? What decade was it? This would have been, well, it would have taken place, uh, I mean, the person, the girlfriend was still alive about 20 years ago. And so it would have been back in the, uh, probably back in the 60s or 70s that it oh. took place. But, uh, you know, then, She's like I said, her. Rob Alley has uh, a, a similar native account, and there have been others. But uh, So it's possible. Uh, it would be possible. Oh, yeah. It's possible. It's possible. I mean, there are accounts of, uh, of rape uh, in, uh, between humans and other great apes. The, um, 
genetics are such, you know, different chromosome numbers that it uh, often leads to um, a non-viable, if, if there is a pregnancy, I mean, even if there is a pregnancy. And that's part of the problem, see. There were supposedly all these stories about, about um, you know, uh, World War II secret programs trying to create uh, super soldiers by crossing ape genes with human genes, mm-hmm. creating some kind of hybrid or at least uh, genetically enhanced or altered uh, soldiers. But the problem is there are, you know, the, you don't just, you can't just have an, an, an egg and any old sperm. And if they're brought into proximity, fertilization takes place. There are recognition proteins that um, uh, provide additional barriers between species, you know, this is this is part of nature. It, it, we would have nothing but chaos oh, wow, if yeah. everything been cross and create fertile offspring. But but that's one of the mechanisms to uh, ensure these boundaries is that even if other barriers are crossed and the gametes come into proximity, they have to be able to recognize one another in, in order for fertilization to take place. And so my understanding is that chimp and uh, human sperm differ in those in those proteins, and so, so it would require I've got genetic a, in vitro manipulation. I have a few questions from the audience here. Um, after that conversation. Oh, man, I could talk about the, the uh, hybrid part and about the hybrid in nature and, and about the – somebody was saying that the – the um, Neanderthals and the humans, you know, got together too. But oh, that's, yeah, yeah, and that, yeah, that's this is a phenomenon that has taken on a new recently. import in discussions of human paleoanthropology, human evolution. Uh, that is that now that we have the human genome project, now that we've we've sequenced the human genome, we've sequenced Neanderthal genomes. They've recognized and Denisovans and so forth. Uh, they've recognized that that most modern Homo sapiens carry quite a number of uh, Neanderthal genes. Oh. But I, in, in my earlier comments, I was just trying to emphasize that. It wasn't as if there was rampant free love between Neanderthals and that these were rather rare events. And the evidence also suggests a one-way flow. They have not identified yet any human, any uniquely modern human genes in the Neanderthal sequences. So it's just Neanderthals and modern humans. So that would suggest, you know, because in most scenarios – the infant is going to stay with the mother, right? right? So in that case, it would be the human female crossing with a Neanderthal male rather than vice versa. Then a man going out, yeah, at least going out no on a, a Bigfoot hunting trip with yeah, a six-pack yeah. of beer. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a good yeah, movie. You can kind of imagine scenarios of, of that. But anyway. And if he is, he wouldn't talk about it. So talking about DNA. Well, okay, hold on. Before I talk about that, uh, someone's question is, where in North America are you confident there are Bigfoot now or in the past? Right. Well, the, the rule of thumb, the kind of axiom that I offer as just a starting point for that conversation um, springs from 
the recognition, and there's been a, a published study, an editorial, where they examined uh, uh, Sasquatch reports, and they did comparison between the factors that determine um, black bear habitat with the distribution of Bigfoot reports and found just a remarkable correlation. So, and it does, you know, no surprise, you have two large omnivorous species, mammal species. So they have similar uh, requirements. But again, going back to our principle of competitive exclusion, they are going about being omnivores in different ways, different activity patterns, different chewing morphologies, different gut physiology, and so forth. But so the rule of thumb is. Look at the distribution of black bear across North America today. And there's some great maps. You can if you Google online black bear distribution map. You'll, you know, American black bear, you'll, you'll, they'll pop up immediately. And use that kind of as a jumping off point. Because then you, you could say, well, if a black bear can make a living, then perhaps a Sasquatch could as well. And also look at the density you know, the distribution is one aspect, but how many black bear are supported in that habitat? And there's great um, summary articles. Um, if you look up uh, black bear numbers by state and Google, there's a great article that has all 50 states listed and how what the estimate is if those data are available, or a couple states that don't report that. But, um, you know, Idaho, for example, has 35,000 black bear. You know, but you go over to Florida, where I just spoke recently, they have 4,000 black bear. So there is some habitat, but it doesn't support a large population of black bears. Now, the inverse is also interesting. And in, if there aren't black bear, like in the middle of the wheat fields of Kansas, the chances of there being a Sasquatch, you know, if there aren't the resources to support a black bear population today, the cover, the habitat, the food resources, water, etc. Uh, you know, limited human encroachment and whatnot. Then um, that says something about the potential for a Sasquatch. If you don't find a Sasquatch, you're at least going to find yourself a bear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're find much something. more likely. And oh, and then and then another thing uh, is uh, uh, with those numbers of black bear. Um, I, there's an exercise, and I, I won't go through the whole thing because it's an hour present, part of an hour presentation about about Sasquatch behavioral ecology that I give. But I kind of walk through a way to, based on a number of different clues, uh, about uh, uh, coming to an estimate of how many Sasquatch are there in a given right. state, for example, and based in on a lot of different variables, but. What's amazing is that when you do this, um, you do this exercise, they, the, the outcome is con- remarkably consistent across different states. And, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the uh, ratio, uh, again, this is just rule. This is sort of, sort of ballpark. This is, you know, spitballing against the wall for the sake of discussion. And, and I could be proven wrong, and there's going to be a lot of variation, but um, one to 200 black bear for every single Sasquatch in a given state. So 35,000 black bear in Idaho, 
you know, there's 100 and 150 to or 170 to 350-ish uh, Sasquatch. In Florida, with 4,000, there's only, you know, 40 to, uh, what would that be? 4,000, there would be uh, 40 to, 20 to 40 in all, in all the state. So does that correlate with the sightings? Well, not entirely because, and because this is the, the fact, the problem with these kinds of data like you have up there now is that the, these are not collected systematically. These are volunteered reports of, of witnesses and for there to be a data point, there has to be a person involved. You know, there has to be a person that has found tracks or seen something or heard something. And so um, it's not like when you, like like they would do with black bear and do a systematic survey, you know, or or, uh, account, you know, by, by tagging and, and uh, uh, baiting and, you know, observing and marking and so forth. So, um, so it, it doesn't necessarily where there are more people adjacent to Sasquatch habitat, then there potentially are more a disproportionate number of encounters. If the culture is such that people are more inclined to post their experience on social media or on one of these databases, then you get more reports. We have more databases now than we had before. I was just going to say, for the longest time, Idahoans were notoriously close vests, close, tight-lipped, played it close to the vest on, and, and didn't report these. Even now, you go to, say, the BFRO's database and look at Idaho, and it doesn't reflect my experience with eyewitnesses. And I, you know, I don't spend a lot of my time, I don't think it's, it's a, a high priority for my time to chase down and try to verify, you know, as, the, mm-hmm. as uh, to their credit, the BFRO curators do. Um, so I don't do that, but I, I can gauge just from my own experiences and from other investigators here in Idaho, Becky Cook, for example, has written a whole series of books. Bigfoot lives in Idaho, Bigfoot still lives in Idaho and so forth. (laughs) But lots and lots of accounts, most of which are not in the BFRO database, for example. So it's, it's messy. It's messy data. You always have to look at these things kind of as, as real ballpark approximations, just jumping off points. And then you've got to, you know, if you're motivated to do your own research, you use these different insights, these different uh, uh, factors to try to narrow down some potential places to look. And then you just keep working those places. You got to become familiar, but it's bear in mind. It's like winning the lottery, Mm -hmm. you know, the odds are really, Really I wonder, where would the odds be better for finding Sasquatch or winning the lottery? Yeah, I think winning the lottery, quite honestly, wow. for, in, in most in, for most people. Yeah. But the point is, you know, to, they, they, like, just like they say, you're not going to win the lottery if you don't buy lottery tickets. That's true. So if you don't go out there and spend time in the field, hike and, and camp and and train yourself to recognize sign that might be right under your nose, you'll never, you'll never have those experiences. Probably you got to like get a, out there and do it. One in uh, 50 million chance of seeing a Sasquatch, but a one in 200 chance of getting a black bear. Oh, right. Yeah. So, and even there, see, that's the thing, given those numbers, 
you know, when you, when you reflect on 35,000 black bear in Idaho, yet you talk to lots of outdoors people and it's a once in a lifetime experience to right. bump into a black bear. Right. I mean, See, that's so interesting there. right there. It's, it's that kind of experience to run to a black bear and how, what about a black bear's carcass? How often right. is that found in nature? And this brings up this question from our audience here. How do you feel they take care of their dead? Do they do burial? Um, has anyone ever located the remains? No. Well, no, not, not credibly. There've been a couple. There was one, um, uh, Oh, I just went blank on his name. Uh, uh, Michael Rugg, Michael Rugg was, uh, someone, a witness brought in a tooth and unfortunately it's been destroyed, but a mold was made of it. Uh, we've got a model of it, uh, but it, it was completely consumed in an effort to try to get DNA oh, no. from it. Um, not not by me, but by by another other person. But what what was uncanny? And we've never quite followed through because the wear was so extensive that you know it was the crown was worn down, so the distinguishing features are kind of lost. But as far as the shape and size and proportion, you put it up to that one of those two jaws associated with Gigantopithecus blackie. And it's a dead ringer for one of the premolars on that jaw. That raises kind of an interesting possibility. But other than that tantalizing little bit, no, nothing. Now, I don't think that they do take care of their dead. Um, I, everything points to these creatures being solitary. Uh, yeah, that's not that's, that's not, not a Sasquatch tooth. Yeah, no. I don't know what the deal was with that. Uh, we we I did remember looking into that, um, but it's. Uh, it's really odd. I've got pictures anyway. of Mike Rugg, but not his tooth that he found. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's Mike Rugg's hand? No, no, no. no. Oh, oh, oh. I, I have pictures of Mike Rugg, but not with oh, him and his tooth. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, it's a pretty featureless tooth that uh, doesn't, the, the crown is worn down to the point that there aren't many, many distinguishing characteristics. Yeah. So, anyway, back to your, your, your point uh, or the, the question. Everything points to these creatures being rather solitary. Tracks are of single individuals. Most sightings are single individuals. Uh, or what might be a female with offspring. Okay, hold and, on. We got a phone call here. And so... Um, Midnight Radio, this is Jerry and Dr. Meldrum. Do you have a comment or question for the doctor? Oh, and they hung up on us. I'm sorry, doctor. Go ahead. <laughs> That's all right. Well, I was just going to say that in situations like that, uh, you know, usually there, uh, there, there isn't any <clears throat> concern over uh, the demise of one of their species if they're even aware of it. Because an animal like that, when it gets old and decrepit and, and death is, uh, is at the doorstep, they'll often hide away or secrete themselves in some out-of-the-way nook or cranny and not visible generally. And so when they die, their body is quickly rendered by, by uh, deep principles of decomposition, by the decayers and decomposers and, and the scavengers that come along. And, you know, nature d disposes of those kinds of things really, really quickly. I sometimes would uh, show my students a time-lapse movie where they, they set up a camera on an elephant carcass of, of a poached elephant that had been killed. And within two weeks, there wasn't even a grease spot in the dirt. I mean, the whole elephant was gone. 
completely carted off and you know every bone every oh. scrap so you know an animal of that dimension <laughs> and of course you know there's a lot of a lot of animals there are a lot of creatures and so forth on the uh, african belt there to uh, carry out that that duty but in the the wet coniferous forest the soils are very acidic so what the decomposers and scavengers don't uh, eat or chew or gnaw all the rodents and other creatures. I mean, even deer chew on bone for calcium, but then anything exposed to the elements in that acidic environment quickly deteriorates and decomposes and just doesn't leave anything. I mean, think for a minute, um, you know, the uh, comparison to, since we mentioned Gigantopithecus, here's a giant ape of this size proportion that inhabited a uh, a Midnight Radio, this is Jerry and Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Do you have a comment or question for the good doctor? Hey, yeah, this is uh, David. How you doing? We're doing well. Uh, yeah, I just uh, was, uh, he kind of touched on uh, one of my questions already, uh, which was the um, people always ask why don't we find the bone, the Bigfoot bones or the bodies? And uh, he kind of explained that about the black bears. If you've got a population of black bears, which is hundreds of thousands more than the Bigfoot, uh, and how often do you find one of those, a black bear that died from natural causes, uh, it gives you kind of an insight into the, uh, the chances if the numbers are so it's much lower, uh, what would be the chances of ever finding uh, anything like that? And I think he was just kind of explaining the elephant and how, how fast things disappear in right. the forest. So um, I was going to ask him also. Oh, go ahead. No, I'm you sorry. go ahead. Uh, yeah, I'm sitting here with a couple of books that came in. Uh, one of them I posted a few things about. This is a, a guy named Mitchell N. Townsend. And he's a, you know, accredited kind of uh, um, um, professor type, you know, does papers and studies and that sort of thing. And he has these papers. He claims that they are peer-reviewed. And, you know, he's figured this out by the, he's found bones of elk and deer that were chewed on. And they found the tracks of the Bigfoot in a place where they sat down. And the bones were scattered out into like a cone-shaped pattern, just like somebody was sitting there eating ribs on a Saturday, you know. And they measured the, the distance between the teeth on the scrapings. Uh, it's really quite amazing. I'm still reading through the book. I've only got it about a third of the way through it. But I was just wondering if he's seen those papers or if he has an opinion on those. Well, I've, I've met uh, Mr. Townsend and uh, I didn't realize he had managed to publish a book is it is it self-published i assume it could be yeah it's uh let let me look at the uh isdn see if it's got a amazon publishing maybe a number yeah yeah it's is yeah it's isbn 13.978-153988 Three two zero three. I guess I can email that to, to Jerry. That's fine. That's fine. No. Well, at the time I first met uh, uh, Townsend, he 
he, he claimed his paper was in peer review. I actually uh, was asked to, to read it and review it for him uh, prior to that whole process, and I had a lot of uh, concerns and and critiques to offer um, that, uh, that that just were not addressed, were not sufficiently explained or um, illustrated in his manuscript to back up his claims. To my knowledge, that paper has never been published, at least not in a reputable peer-reviewed journal. So um, I know of no paper, let alone multiple papers. Uh, he is not a, he has, uh, he, he's not even an adjunct He's not a professor. He doesn't have a PhD, is my, my understanding. He doesn't have a PhD. He, he's not an adjunct uh, faculty. He, he was given permission to teach a night course, uh, which he did uh, about Bigfoot, kind of just as a special interest topic. Um, but it's, <laughs> I, I, I don't mean to, well, I, I do. I guess I do mean to, to qualify his statements, not by casting, casting dispersions or speaking ill of him, but he has, he has a tendency to misrepresent his credentials. And uh, not only yeah, his, his academic, but his military credentials, from what I've been told by other individuals in the know in that regard. Um, so uh, the, the claims about uh, the ribs and the chew marks you know, he, he can't demonstrate that these are not rodents. Um, there's a big deal about the little, uh, he draws attention to, you know, when, and I can't remember the particular name, the little papillary bumps on the, on a newly erupted permanent tooth. Um, you know, before the tooth wears nice and even, there's often these little rounded bumps on the, on the edge. And he, he suggests yeah. that there's evidence of that in the stripping of the of the uh, membrane of the periosteum from the ribs. Um, there's no evidence offered in the paper of stacking in any intentional way. The photo that's provided just shows bones that are randomly scattered down a hillside. The, just a natural scattering of bones at a decomposing, you know, processing site of a carcass. Um, it's just, you know, one thing after another, it, <laughs> there's, there just frankly is no um, substance. He was going, the last time I, I saw him at a conference, he was going on and on and on about these, uh, these stones that were supposedly painted by Native Americans and uh, the paintings uh, he found examples that depicted the Sasquatch or a hairy man. But when you look at them, when you examine them, he, they are simply patina, uh, natural patina on these stones. There's nothing painted, manually painted on. He looked through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these in a, in a natural quarry or an old riverbed or something that, that uh, until he and, and then cherry picked out examples of Sasquatch and supposedly other figures that are so abstract. I mean, it's like a Rorschach ink blot test. There's no, there's you know, there's there's nothing to that whatsoever. I don't know if that is figured, but I see that every now and again he gets invited to present 
at, at a conference here or there. Um, I was talking with one organizer and, and he was really lobbying hard and heavy to try to get an invitation from this individual to include him in the program. Um, you know, I'll, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll let it, let, let what he has to say speak for itself. But, uh, you know, it would be interesting to see the book. I can't imagine that, uh, there's anything more substantial than what was in the manuscript because I gave him a whole list of ways in which he could improve his manuscript to at least get uh, a peer review, a uh, serious peer review, um, uh, things that would be uh, necessary for him even to submit it to the relic hominoid inquiry for consideration. And um, he didn't address any of them, not a single uh, point of my review. And uh, so I, uh, I don't yeah. know what else to say. <laughs> really, yeah, I'm yeah. looking at some of these uh, pictures. Yeah, I see the I see the picture now where he's got the the the, the teenager Bigfoot with the bumps on his teeth. I guess that's that's over my head a lot of it, but uh, it's just interesting. Uh, he does he does get a little bit off on the uh, uh, what they call the woo woo side of things. He takes people out to the site and they sees all these lights and orbs and stuff and. So yeah, yeah I, I think you know I just uh, finish reading the book and see see more what I uh, think about it. But he claims that the teeth distance is the exact ratio. There's a certain ratio of this number he's hung on. Right, that, right. The, the distance. And, he, and he cites some person who claims credentials in a and I can't remember the exact term, but the, this concocted discipline of dental morphology, which doesn't exist. And so, so this guy is, if he's a real person, he's, he's a hack or more likely he only exists in Michael's imagination. It's just a character, uh, uh, authoritative character that he has created in order to lend some, uh, um, you know, credibility to his theory about, about these impressions on the teeth. But there's, yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> anyway, next. Did that answer your question, David? <laughs> All right. Yeah, thank, yeah. thank you for calling in. Appreciate it. You have a good evening. Hey, thank you. Uh, good luck, Dr. Jeff. Thanks. Appreciate it. All right. He, he brought up something. Um, well, I guess he sort of did. Here's a question. Here's a question from the audience. Any indication of supernatural abilities or hostility yeah. towards humans or Indian depictions? Well, you know, for the most part, it's always funny because I had to catch myself because for the most part, uh, descriptions of encounters with Sasquatch are really quite mundane. And usually the witness and Sasquatch end up very promptly going in opposite directions. Having said that, there is an element of uh, both um, European but also uh, uh indigenous tradition that is a little more nefarious um, whether it's abducting adults or abducting children you know the aspects of quote cannibalism cannibalism in the sense of man eating because of their man like qualities I guess the term cannibal has been attached but eating humans which seems kind of uh, you know just so stories and yet there is precedent in 
um, grade eight behavior. There was a, a rash of abductions of human children during the extremely harsh drought conditions in Uganda, for example, that got some um, publicity and some press coverage uh, over a, a seven-month period, one particular seven-month period, there were 12 cases of human toddlers and infants being snatched by chimps and eaten. So suddenly these just-so stories about Sasquatch snatching, snatching native children and t- taking them off to eat for dinner you know, like Hansel and Gretel, um, have a basis in, uh, you know, biological behavior of other great apes. So, uh, so, so there is, there's that part. As far as supernatural, I don't think um, nothing that I'm familiar in their anatomy and behaviors speaks to any supernatural or paranormal qualities. It just doesn't. Every time I've been included in some outing in an effort to demonstrate to me some paranormal uh, experience, nothing happens. I think (laughs) a lot of people are thinking they're dimensional supernatural beings because they can't, they don't readily see them. Like they can go in and out of the visible world. So that's what I find is when people get frustrated because they haven't won the lottery, they they come up with different explanations to account for their lack of success. And so not all, and there are some who have genuine experiences from their perspective, their own subjective interpretation of what what has happened. And I, you know, I I respect that and I'm open certainly open to the possibility, but, but there is, because I've encountered and interacted with these people, there is an element that resort or gravitate to those uh, explanations because they find the naturalistic ones wanting. If they were just flesh and blood, we would have caught one by now. You know, if they were just flesh and blood, we would have found a body by now. Mm-hmm. See, I and I don't find a problem in in those objections. Uh, you know, the the the, uh, the the phenomenon. I mean, the, the rarity is the common denominator that, in my mind, accounts for those shortcomings. <clears throat> this is a question, challenges. and I believe you answered it before, but it was. Uh, primary, it's been on my mind since I even heard the name Sasquatch, and I was wondering, okay, well, where are the dead bodies? Where are the bones? And the second right. thing um, is, where's the poo poo? Where is the where is the scat? And that right. recently, I have a picture. It was right beside yours when I was looking you up. Although it was David Pilates, though, it wasn't you? True story. Here it is, right here. Um, so I was wondering if you had a big one like this. Oh, it's huge. I don't have one like that. Have you seen no. this pic? Have you heard about this? Uh, no, not that particular example, but... but have you, you s- know. seen examples of this before? It looks like it's on his wall or something. Oh, sure. I've, I've seen examples of scat that could very well... I mean, the, the best one that comes to mind, I was working with uh, Don Mianzinski. We had we had kind of reached out and tried to network with the agency offices in throughout Western Wyoming, where we were doing a lot of field work in order to open the channels of communication. And sure enough, a couple of weeks later, we'd get a call and there had been footprints found in um, the Southern end of the wind river range. Wow. And uh, these were some of the best footprints I've ever seen. 16 inch tracks. It came down out of the woods 
uh, was meandering in amongst uh, a cluster of uh, seasonally occupied cabins. It was peering in the kitchen windows, you know. <laughs> I can just imagine. But in any case, they found the tracks, the residents found the tracks the next morning. And sure enough, you know, as I've often hoped for, there was a scat right between two footprints, just right nice. there. And um, unfortunately, wow. it was quite a number of days before we were between being notified and being able to get out there to examine and uh, collect it. And uh, the um, when it was, you know, you, you have about an eight-hour window with scat okay. to get it stabilized, preserved in in 95% ethanol in order to get any DNA from it. Okay. Otherwise, bacterial action in the scat itself just, you know, chews up all the, that uh, uh, DNA from the sloughed mucosal cells. Um, and so that was kind of out of the question, but we had a, a documentary crew that was more than willing to pay for the test. So we thought, Oh, what the heck, you know, it's a shot in the dark, but maybe there might be some trace that has survived. It came back as dog. Well, we thought this is ridiculous. It's not dog scat because it's, you could break it open and see the contents. And it was almost a hundred percent well masticated, but not completely digested sedges. Dogs don't eat sedges, at least they might chew on some grass, you know, when they have indigestion, but they won't sit and eat a stomach full of, of sedges from a marsh or a meadow. Uh, but we discovered upon then uh, questioning the witnesses, the family, well, he goes, oh, yeah, my dog, as soon as he saw it, he came over and sniffed. He lifted his leg and peed all over it. Oh. <laughs> so we were picking up traces of that dog urine on the scat on the on the scat so, so if, anyway, they were, if they um, were doing a dna test and they had something they didn't recognize and then they had dog dna would they just go with okay it's dog well there's that possibility too sure you might just take the simplest most straightforward result but one of the challenges with this is uh, on, on a slightly different vein is Again, we're, we, we talked about black bear and Sasquatch, two large omnivores, meaning they have similar or at least overlapping diets. And so, uh, and they have quite varied diets. So the appearance of bear scat and Sasquatch scat could be fairly similar, especially if their body mass is comparable, then the size and volume could, could be very comparable as well. Um, and the consistency is going to depend on what they've been eating. So like in this case, it was, it was like uh, manure. I mean, it was, it was uh, formed more in a cylindrical shape rather than like a cow pie, but it was, uh, it was long uh, logs of, of compacted uh, sedges uh, if they've been eating berries, it's going to look like berry cobbler. You know, it's a big mush, big gush pop. And if it's uh, if they get into a carcass, then it's black. You know, so it varies with the with the season, with the foods that are dominant in their in their digestive tract and and how well it's digested. So. Um, so when you say where is the poop, I suspect that most poop is just it's on the no, ground. No it's another thought because well, it just looks like bear scat. <laughs> well, Doctor Melder, let's look at this scientifically. Let's think about this. 
So how yeah. about instead of going out and looking for Sasquatch, I mean, astronomical odds, how yeah. about looking for his poop? I mean, that's even more astronomical, it seems like. Good question. Well, well, no, it's a good question, and we, we uh, tackled it. I mean, it's not like I haven't thought of these things. And the, uh, there are specially trained scat dogs that are used in various conservation wildlife studies. They, they are trained to identify the scat of, of specific species. And they can even be trained to identify individuals within that species in a region, in a given region sometimes. It's just remarkable the, what they do. So, of course, we began to explore this. We talked to several uh, cadaver dog and scat dog handlers. And uh, we had one that was really intrigued with this whole question. And she even offered to with a little bit of financial support because it's a huge commitment to take on a dog and train it. You know, you, you have that dog for the next 20 years. So, um, and we had, I have access to various tissues of, of great apes in my collection, some that are fresh frozen. So I was able to get a uh, gorilla and chimp and orangutan, uh, but then in talking, and, and so she was actually working with the dog, training it on these specimens. Uh, but then talking with other trainers, they were uh, very negative because they said these dogs are so specific. I mean, these are dogs, like I said, who can pick out individuals. These are dogs that can be trained to detect changes in your body that suggest cancer or diabetes, you know. There's that sensitive. And she says if you train them to orangutan, thinking that, well, the Bigfoot's got to be closely related to orangutan or chimp, it will indicate to orangutan, but it won't recognize Sasquatch as an orangutan. You know, just like it won't recognize the chimp as an orangutan or a human as an orangutan. She said, so you're basically going to train a a dog um, to something that it will never encounter in the wild. And then plus, she said, with these scat dogs, they have to be constantly ongoing training and they have to be successful. They have to be positively reinforced. So if you can't go out there and have it successfully find scat on a regular basis, you're going to lose its, you know, any training um, uh, capabilities that, uh, that are instilled within the dog. So it, it fizzled and it was obvious that it wasn't going to, to work. And then unfortunately our, our trainer, took a job elsewhere and her dog was uh, was became a pet <laughs> i don't know if it went on to be trained in other things besides great apes or not i've learned a lot about sasquatch scat that i never thought i would uh, it all makes sense to me now i mean yeah. it, if you need this verified you and you're sure you're not playing around this isn't a joke but it's like hey i've got something dr meldrum and then he yeah. comes out there and he sees the feet. He's like, that is the footprint of Sasquatch. That has to be the poop of Sasquatch. It makes sense. You can actually verify the poop. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I have, and I've told this story before, but, uh, you know, people were eager to send me their specimens collected in the field. And, and oh, wow. uh, some would send frozen scat in August. Well, you know, if it's not FedEx Overnight Express, 
uh, it's probably going to thaw out before it arrives in Pocatello. And I've had occasion when the secretary calls me and said, "Uh, Dr. Meldrum, there's a box down here for you, and it's dripping, and it doesn't smell very good. So I had to... I had to request, you know, people generally don't send me anything unless, you know, it's completely air, either air dried. If, if it's beyond DNA analysis, then it needs to be air dried. You know, you put it in a lunch bag and just let it completely dry out until it can be crumbled. There's no moisture left. And then you can break it apart. You can re-elute it with some water under a microscope and look at the vegetation. What, what is it eating? What parasites might be present? You know, look for eggs under the microscope and so forth. And <clears throat> But otherwise, if you find scat and it's still, and that's why I say, if it's steaming and it's between two tracks, then uh, I, I encourage people to, you know, take a little vial and if you can get a hold of some 95% ethanol, that's ideal. Sometimes that's hard to come by, but unless you have access to a, you know, a stock room at a university or whatnot, then you can use isopropyl alcohol, rubbing alcohol. It's just not as good. But have a little while with alcohol. And then I say, you know, just go down to one of these fast food stores and get a little cellophane wrapped knife or spoon have that in your backpack and then and then a pair of gloves break the seal just skim off the outside of the scat because that's as it passes down through the anal canal it, it there there it uh, scrapes off some of the mucosal cells lining uh, the intestine and um, and then uh, the outer kind of shiny layer mucousy looking layer on that scat is where the Sasquatch DNA would be. You get that and you swirl it down into that uh, isopropyl alcohol, seal it up, and then there's a chance. I mean, you just gave you everybody know, instructions of how to mail you the proper way to mail you Sasquatch poo. But you have to be pretty confident because it's expensive to have DNA analysis done. Be a believer. And, and as we've talked about earlier, you can't be satisfied with just a cursory analysis of a, of a single, you know, short span of DNA. You're going to have to do an extensive. So we're talking potentially tens of thousands of dollars. Does it need a, to be frozen within eight hours of being excreted? Well, ideally it's not, not just frozen, but it, ideally it's put into alcohol. Alcohol that will, frozen? That will stabilize the DNA so it doesn't decompose. So Even it, freezing, unless you have an ultra-cold freezer. Okay. See, so most... Most frost-free freezers in people's homes, the way they stay frost-free is they cycle up. They warm up so that the so the frost doesn't accumulate and, and you know, turn into a, a glacier in there. And so the temperature is vacillating significantly. And uh, a, a specimen, a biological specimen like that's not going to be stable. All right, so isopropyl alcohol, 90 proof. No, not isopropyl. You said ethanol. 90 yeah, proof ideally ethanol. 95% ethanol. 95% ethanol. I'm going to put that in the show notes below. I might make a short clip of it of what to do with Sasquatch. Yeah. All right, yeah. We're, we're coming to the end of the show now. we got 10 minutes left. i got a couple more questions. Okay. Somebody wants to know what you have coming up on the horizon. 
What are you working on now? Right. That's a good question. Oh, and I just wanted to put a plug in for, you know, you were talking about putting notes. Um, check out my Sasquatch field guide. A lot of the questions about field techniques for collecting and documenting and preserving and reporting so forth of different types of data, different types of evidence are explained very nicely and succinctly in that little laminated multifold uh, field guide. So the future, well, we, my, I was very excited pre-pandemic with a project that uh, we were trying to mount in collaboration with Dr. Neil Gemmel of New Zealand, who's a molecular biologist. He was one of the principal investigators of the multinational team that looked at the waters of Loch Ness using environmental DNA techniques to um, identify the inhabitants of that and, and of the lake and its surrounding environment. And they came up with this very interesting conclusion of this previously unrecognized eel species, oh. suggesting that maybe there's a giant eel that uh, is harbored uh, or the lake harbors. Um, <clears throat> so make a long story short, I, I uh, met a former student of his who got us in communication with one another. It turns out he would be interested, is interested in uh, mounting a project to apply these kinds of techniques to the search for Sasquatch. Uh, and then, unfortunately, the pandemic hit. Uh, all, uh, you know, travel was uh, was shut down and uh, everything kind of it took the wind out of the sails of the project. And now we are past or post-pandemic, but still it's been a little bit challenging getting the, the head of steam built up again. So that's one of my, on my to-do list for this summer is to start to get our ducks back in a row for that project with the aims of perhaps uh, 2024 being the, the uh, thrust of that. Um, the other, the other direction, well, I mean, there's, there's other directions for field research. That one, this one, environmental DNA, I think is, probably the most promising as far as other projects. One that I'm also very excited about is that, uh, uh, Doug Highcheck of white wolf entertainment, uh, who was responsible for the production of Sasquatch legend meat science. The documentary is, uh, undertaking Sasquatch legend meat science volume two and has invited me to work with him on that project to a degree, you know, as a, uh, uh, as an advisor and so forth, but also more importantly, more and more, even more responsibly to, uh, uh, write the companion volume to that book. So that's, uh, on my plate, occupying a large part of my plate for this, uh, upcoming summer. Also, what about the journal you work on? Let's talk about that. Well, yeah, and that's a great source for people, too. Um, I'm editor, managing editor of the Relic Hominoid Inquiry. It's, uh, it's hosted on the ISU webpage, so it's www.isu.edu forward slash RHI, RHI. So it's easy to find. If you just Google Relic Hominoid Inquiry, it'll take you there. It's in its 12th year now. And, and I don't, it's not me alone. There's a board of, uh, 
editors. We just reconstituted recently, and so I'm getting my new editors kind of on board. Um, after 10 years, we, we uh, others, uh, our, our passport had, uh, had shrunk by attrition through the passing of several of our members, but also uh, other responsibilities calling, uh, competing for attention. Um, but we have research papers. We have in-depth book reviews that are very insightful. We have um, commentaries uh, and uh, news items and uh, technical papers, brief reports, field reports, and so forth. And not only that, but they are rigorously peer-reviewed. And if anybody knows the, the what goes into being peer-reviewed, uh, it is quite extensive. Right. You know, and, and, and this, we, we are... Uh, and obviously, we we don't have the uh, the prejudice against the topic that some of the other mainstream journals might might uh, uh, harbor, but but it is a rigorous review, and I don't send it out to just friendly faces or or uh, sympathetic uh, colleagues. Um, they when when we get a paper, I I you know search online for the movers and shakers who's publishing in that discipline or the appropriate field. And, um, you know, a lot of my contacts are cold calls to these individuals, inviting them to participate. And that's, what's been very gratifying about this experience is that there is a lot of intrinsic interest in this subject out there. And the reactions to my invitations have almost unanimously been very, very positive. And I mean, uh, when I say almost, the only rejections I've had are when there were, you know, competing responsibilities or lack of time or be out of the country or whatever. But um, this provides a great opportunity for networking. People who wouldn't otherwise be directly involved with this topic have been willing to offer their expertise as a reviewer or as a commentator um, uh, writing a, a comment or response to uh, to a paper, and uh, it has engendered a lot of dialogue and a lot of uh, very useful feedback. And not every paper makes it. You know, sometimes uh, when the reviews are, uh, you know, the the, the the authors just aren't able or willing to rise to the constructive criticisms of the reviewers and decide this not for them, whatever. But uh, but there's been some, been some great papers, as well as another aspect I think I mentioned earlier is that we've had um, the opportunity to, to publish reprints or translations, uh, uh, translated reprints of historical works that have not been available uh, uh, generally to an English-speaking audience. And so it's, a, it's becoming a great repository of... Uh, of um, uh, materials relating to not only Sasquatch, but relic hominoids around the world. There's this question here, and I don't understand it. It says, Dr. Meldrum, did you help Sasquatch from Mount St. Helens? Did, did they find Sasquatch from? Or did you help save the Sasquatch from Mount St. Helens? No, no, no. And, and there have been all these different uh, you know stories about corpses, uh, incinerated corpses, or, or injured Sasquatch with mm-hmm. burns. And so you don't know about anything like that. Uh, you don't you're, know. You're, 
you're cutting out. You don't know about anything like that. Uh, also, no. someone had a question, and I think it's. I think we already discussed it. I think it's the same line as this. Has the government uh, had a Sasquatch body, or have they incarcerated a Sasquatch? Well, if they have, I'm I'm oblivious. I'm unaware. It, again, it kind of goes back to that earlier discussion where I I don't know of any uh, upper level involvement, and and all the stories about men in black and and uh, unmarked helicopters and people showing up on investigators' doorsteps and confiscating their casts and their files. I mean, no one has ever knocked at my door, <laughs> you know? So I've joked, well, I must be doing a good job at disseminating disinformation. In fact, one time uh, at, at a conference fairly recently, this came up during the panel Q&A, and uh, the mic started at the other end. I was in the middle, and each one had their own theory about conspiracies and so forth. And, and then the mic handed to me and I just kind of paused there for, you know, for effect, for dramatic effect. And then I said, well, you know, I've, I thought long and hard about this and maybe this is the right time that I should finally come clean. I'm not a university professor at all. I'm actually a government agent planted at Idaho state university to disseminate disinformation about Sasquatch. But now it's time I think to, <laughs> and what was funny, I mean, I mean, it was uh, what, what was funny was the reaction of the audience because I'm not kidding. Half the audience was, you know, bursting out into laughter, but the other half were sitting there. The half that didn't know you with right. their eyes like saucers, like because they they actually thought that I was well, telling the truth. You have like a 40 year track record and a body of work. If anybody really knew, they'd be like, "No, nah, he's joking." You know what I mean? Uh, right, right. But it was just, uh, that you is know, funny. Like I said, yeah, who knows? I mean, my impression is the government's not really good at keeping secrets. And so, seem so like you know, uh, I've been uh, I've been challenged on that opinion by a couple of people who suggested that they knew things that I didn't know and so forth. And that may be. But I I don't see any evidence uh, any evidence of it whatsoever. Yeah, the the X Files doesn't come and ask you your expert opinion on this thing they found. That could right. possibly happen in the future, though. That leads us to this next question. What is the one thing, this will be our last question, that you wish you could locate or experience going forward aside from an actual sighting? Oh, aside how do you, from? How do, you aside, how do you aside from an actual sighting? Yeah, I mean, that's because cause I've caught a glimpse. I mean, I've often been asked if I've seen a Sasquatch, and I think I may have. I caught a very fleeting glimpse through night vision. Uh, unfortunately, it was... It was under circumstances that uh, you know that, that raised questions about the the likelihood of it being authentic. Um, I don't hold those same reservations. It's just a matter of did I correctly interpret what I think I saw? But I want to have that daytime. You know, when, when I talk to witnesses who have these daylight face face. encounters and lock eyes with them and stare and mm-hmm. have a stare down, that's what I want to, or to be picked up in a sleeping bag and carted across the countryside. I, I'd go for that. Oh, Lordy. <laughs> that would be the ultimate thing. I, I really appreciate you spending your time with us, uh, answering all these questions some of us have had our, our entire lives. You know, sure. I feel satisfied in your answers. I really do. 
Well, yeah, some some were not answers, just just conversations about discussing the ins and outs of it. But you know, there's a lot of unanswered aspects of this. It's it still remains a mystery. But uh, what an interesting question to contemplate to pursue. Somebody had a question like, if I want to be like you. A scientist, and they put it as a, a scientist studying Bigfoot instead of right. an anthropologist. Where would I start? Well, what I tell young people to do, young or old, is to um, select uh, a discipline that you are uh, passionate about, and it doesn't have to be anthropology. It could be, it could be uh, molecular biology, DNA sequencing. It could be uh, bioacoustics. It could be cultural anthropology. It could be uh, fiber analysis. You know, in other words, a, a, a discipline that has uh, that embodies skills that could be applied to some type of evidence that bears on the question of Sasquatch. And then uh, something that you really enjoy doing because this, at least at the beginning of your career, is going to be a small part and you'll probably have to keep it very close to the vest until you have some job security. Uh, If you're in academia, that means you've got to get tenure and have a little bit uh, before, before being allowed the, the uh, full potential of academic freedom that that, that, supposedly offers Uh, and then you know not only pursue that but become authoritative uh, or an authority that's a better way to say it become an authority in uh, in your discipline and once you have that job security then apply those skills and those techniques to questions around the possible existence of Sasquatch or some other relic hominoid um, then you can do it from a position of, of credibility and authority. Uh, but I tell you, you know, I, uh, I wouldn't recommend the path that I followed because I was, uh, I, I rather say idealistic rather than say naive, but I think there was a certain degree of naivete in my, in my, uh, jumping into the deep end of the pool, even before I had tenure and it nearly cost me my career, my job, at least the, present job uh, because of the reaction of my my colleagues within my department and across campus and and elsewhere. Um, And it has continued to be a thorn uh, in delaying promotions and so forth and other recognition. Um, And so, uh, you know, I, I, I had an idealistic notion of science and, and a very apolitical approach to uh, my own, colleagues and um, boy I tell you it did reveal uh, an un, uh, an unpleasant underbelly to uh, to, you know, to, uh, to this community it, it is science is made up of a community of people who have all the foibles and all the idiosyncrasies of any other cross-section of humanity in any other community <laughs> and uh, I discovered that all to uh, all too abruptly when uh, this kind of hit the fan, so to speak. That's, so that's another interest of mine: the politics that exist in science. Yeah, like, people have no idea. It's amazing. Oh yeah, no, it's really, and especially when it comes to things like paleoanthropology, it becomes very politically charged, and and because of the rarity of the specimens and the and the uh, uh, 
you know, the plentiful individuals eager to analyze those and have access to those, it can become quite a dog-eat-dog environment. Even the things that might rewrite history a little bit from the way we know it now. Sure, sure. I mean, there are dogmas, there are things. One of the interesting things about my involvement with this subject is that it has provided some fresh perspective as I turn my attention back to uh, my study, say, of the Laetoli hominid footprints, for example, fossil hominid footprints, and, and <clears throat> um, you know, the whole notion of this Un, uh, unexpected at the time, uh, flat, flexible foot with a non-divergent big toe, um, that turned out to be the standard adaptation. Early hominins walked on a more Sasquatch-like foot with a, non, a non-divergent big toe and a flat, flexible foot with a mid-tarsal break for millions of years successfully. I just got to show this picture again real quick. This is you holding up the foot. And the thing that caught me right the first time I saw it is if you can look at where a part of it's flaked off on the bottom, and that is right at the flex there. It looks like it was because of the pressure in the mud that was on the actual foot. Uh, Well, I'm not sure what you've seen flaked off there. There are are dry uh, desiccation cracks where the mud Mm -hmm. in which the footprint was left began to dry as the sun came out. The rain abated and the sun came out. Um, but uh, this end of this footprint doesn't show a real distinctive pressure ridge because the, the substrate it's walking on is a hard pan sort of logging landing at a construction site in the forest there covered with that pulverized dust that the big big rigs, you know, leave behind, that they grind up. But you got this hard pan with the dust that was wet down by the rain. So when it stepped, it squished right through that layer of mud and hit the hard pan, kind of flattened out. So the hard pan wouldn't yield, wouldn't give to create a pressure ridge. But what was interesting about this occasion is that whatever was leaving the tracks apparently was spooked by someone arriving on the seen and it bolted ran back to the tree line with twice the stride or step length and running up on the front half of its foot so it left a series of what i call half tracks well if we sprinted on our toes we would be on the ball of the foot we'd have an abbreviated track but we'd be poised because of our stiff arch up on the ball of the foot. These creatures don't have an arch to support the foot in that posture, so it collapses into flexion across the mid-tarsus, and it leaves a half-track, the entire forefoot. And that can only be explained by the presence of this flexible um, uh, set of joints through the instep. So it it further corroborates the the mid-tarsal flexibility model uh, in a very elegant way. It's endlessly fascinating. Thank you very much for being here. I appreciate yeah. it. It was worth it every minute. Good. Thank you again. You have a good evening. This is Dr. Jeff Meldrum, everybody. He is a professor at Idaho State University of Anthropology and a few other things. Yeah. <laughs> he is a busy man, so I really appreciate him spending his time with us. All right. Yeah. Thank you very much, sir. You have a good night. You too. Thank you. That was an awesome interview, guys. Uh, I learned some things before I wrap it up here that I've always wanted to know 
about Bigfoot, and that is, where's the body? And now that's answered in my mind. Where is the uh, scat? Now that's answered in my mind. So, I mean, it's just amazing. I'd like to thank him very much. You've been listening or you've been watching Midnight Radio. I'd like to thank you very much. That was Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Until next time, good night and God bless. I'm going to put links to everything we went over tonight in the description right there below the video. And you're going to put, I'm going to put some of the things he was talking about the relic hominid inquiry. The Sasquatch filled guide. I'll probably make a video of what you should do. Short. I'm going to make a YouTube short of him talking about what you should do if you want to preserve some scat and melt to him in the mail. So until next time, good night, God bless, and all my best.